Well, good morning. So it's good to be back after two weeks and to see you guys and to report that um, Doug Bunn, who, you know, had that hip, double hip replacement about 10 days ago, he's doing really, really well. And don't be surprised if there are Doug sightings coming up soon. He appears to be able to move around. He's gotten released from physical therapy. He's, he's just doing great. So he appreciates very much the prayers. And when he'll be back up here next week, uh, you can look for him truly to bound up from the floor up onto the platform. And then you can ask him how the Super Bowl went, and he'll <laughs> slide right back on down. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so we're in First Peter. I'm going to read four verses out of chapter 2, and then we're going to look at those. Some verses that Peter continued on after we looked at the first four verses two weeks ago from chapter 2, where he encourages us and encourages all the readers of, of his letter to, to really crave God's word like a baby would crave its mother's milk. And then he begins to start to unpack what this new identity that we have as Christians looks like in a culture that isn't necessarily for us. So we're not the only culture that has experienced this whole anti-Christian attitude, of course. In fact, the ones that he wrote to, the church that he wrote to in Asia Minor, these Christians who were in exile, who met together but didn't always find it easy to be Christians and weren't always sure that maybe God was really for them, well, he writes some encouraging words in verses 4 to 8. So let's take a look at those. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8. Peter writes these words, he says, As you come to him, this is Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Well, I'm a fan of church architecture, love looking at church buildings and seeing how they were built and how people worshipped in days gone by. So I've had a chance the, for the first time to, to visit some places that are worth watching and looking at, but I remember the first cathedral I visited, and that's when you really get the sense of the bigness of, of worship and, the, and a sense of awe of God, was visiting the Washington National Cathedral years ago. That's the cathedral, the largest one, at least in the United States, built, started building in 1907. If we can throw a picture of that one up. Some of you have been there, I'm sure. It's an awe-inspiring building that took, well, still being built. After the earthquake in Mineral a few years ago, um, they had $31 million damage to that building from an earthquake that happened in Virginia. So they're still building it, but it's a fabulous place just to go and observe the, the building of stone upon stone and how beautiful the stained glass is. But my wife and I get to travel to Europe some now since our oldest daughter lives there, and we have visited places like Notre Dame and Notre Dame in Paris, which, of course, a little bit older than the Washington National Cathedral. It was 
completed in the year 1345. So that goes a little bit older than we are. And uh, it's just a fabulous building. And of course, there's always people there. It's a great tourist attraction. But there's also worship going on in that place all the time. Another place we've enjoyed seeing is the King's College Chapel at Cambridge in England. It was completed in 1515. Very different type of architecture, still stone upon stone, but just this sense of awe as you look at the building, reaching upward, drawing your eye up to what we would think of as the heavens. But the oldest building or oldest cathedral that we have visited is actually in Trier, Germany, the oldest city in Germany. It's St. Peter's Cathedral, and the foundation for that was actually St. Helen's Cathedral, which was built kind of under it, which was the fourth century. So it was one of the earliest church buildings in Northern Europe. Now, being that old, of course, it's been destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt. It was sacked by the Franks, by the Normans. Everybody's tried to sack it. But again, there's still worship going on there. And because it's that old, it's one of those cathedrals that has relics. So it claims to have a robe that that Christ wore when he was on earth. And it has a nail from the cross. I wonder how many nails there were. (laughs) They're all over the place. Uh, But it also has the skull of St. Helen, the mother of Constantine. The chapel that was originally built there was built in honor of her. And then in Luxembourg, where our daughter lives, there's a cathedral with a a beautiful inside. It's not as large as some of the other ones, not quite as old. It was started in 1613, so newer for Europe standards. But still, stones upon stones upon stones raising up to give glory to God. But we don't have to go that far if we want to see an old church building. We can go down to Duke of Gloucester Street and look at Bruton Parish, building that for us, the the design of which and the structure as it looks now probably looked a little bit like that in 1715 when it was done. Not quite as old as Europe, but still something that reminds us that people have been worshiping in places built of brick and mortar for a long time. But one of my favorite in in a short distance from here is actually in Weems, Virginia, It's Christ Church, somewhere between Irvington and Kilmarnock. Many of you have been there. Built by the Carter family who had the plantation of that area and wanted a place to worship. And they built this building, small by most standards, but inside has one of those wonderful triple-decker pulpits that you have to climb up to preach and stand under this acoustical-sounding board, this huge wooden structure that amplifies the voice so you don't need one of these. Amazing things to see. I love it when I can see stone upon stone built for the reason of worshiping God. But the reality is, and and we have stone here, right? Outside we have some stone. Is that real stone? Or is it concrete stone? I don't know what it is. It's stone. But you know, it's stone. It's dead stone. The stones that are built into these cathedrals that date back maybe even to the 4th century or is even up early as the the cathedral in Washington, D.C. They're not living They're just dead stones built upon one another with some mortar holding them together. Some wonderful architecture that keeps things going. Flying buttresses and all kinds of things that engineers like Doug would be excited about. But what's exciting isn't the fact that just there's these stone buildings that still exist and that some of them are actually still used for the original purpose. Some of them no longer are used for that. But it's what happens inside where Peter says, living stones gather. And that's what he does in these verses that we just read. He compares the Christian life, he compares even us, he says we're living stones. We're being built into a house, a spiritual house, 
that has a very distinct purpose. And so when you think about the church in our modern day, and the American church, and how varied we can be, and how when, if you move to a new town and you want to find a church, it's most likely you will go to a church that you're familiar with if you've been in a church, if you're a churched person. Maybe you've been in a denomination, so you'll go to the first whatever denomination church of that city and check it out. That's what you know. You're used to that. But you could go to another church or another one, and many people, even as they come to the chapel, will report that we've been in town, oh, a year or two, and we've been church shopping, as the word is said, words are said, trying to find a place that fits us. Well, what makes a church fit? How do you know if you fit a church? Well, Peter says, you're, you're like living stones. You're being built into a building. I guess you have to find the right local building where you're going to fit. Well, what does that look like? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning as we look at these verses. Because Peter continues what is really this, this sweeping thought that in Christ we have been born again. We've been born anew into a living hope and an imperishable inheritance. And because of that, we are new people with new purpose, and it's a Godward purpose. Jesus changes everything when he enters into life. And he enters into our life individually, and that's what Peter is focused on a bit as he's unpacked for these believers their identity in Christ, their need to stay connected to him, their need to be in the word of God so they'll know God and know Christ. But now he begins to look in a little bit more of a corporate sense as And that is that you're just not an individual stone lying out in the field worshiping God. That's not how you were created. You're created to be a part of a building, to use his metaphor, that you are a living stone that is meant to be connected with other living stones, to be built into a spiritual house that has particular purpose in mind. It's not a new thought. Peter didn't come up with this on his own. Peter knows the scripture. He knows the Old Testament. And so as he describes this living stone, he's, he's thinking even back to, to what he said in a sermon back in Acts chapter 4. He said this as he's preaching about Jesus to a crowd that doesn't yet understand that truly Jesus is the Messiah. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, speaking to the Jews, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. So Peter understands that Scripture has always pointed to a a person who will be the cornerstone, the one on whom God will build his kingdom, the one on whom God will build what we think of as the church. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 deliver that message. The psalmist says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah picks it up in Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And then he says this, whoever believes will not be in haste, he says. (laughs) Will not be in haste. Jesus picks up those words and applies them to himself as Matthew records it in chapter 21 of his gospel. Jesus said to them, have you not read in Scripture? And then he unpacks those words about the cornerstone. In Jesus' day, in first century Palestine, the Jews understood the Messiah would come as a cornerstone. But they sort of missed the rejected part. 
And so when they're rejecting Jesus, they're missing the fact that they're rejecting the very one who has come. The cornerstone has arrived. And Peter says that cornerstone is the resurrected Christ. Here he is. He is the Messiah. Which means that if he's the cornerstone, and if the the building of God is built on him, then there is going to be a new temple. Because the temple is the place where God arrives. God shows up. God dwells in a sense. God came and dwelt among men in Jesus Christ. And now he dwells among men in other people. People that Peter describes as living stones. So the church exists, Peter says, and we notice this in what he's written. We are built up, being built up, in fact, he says, to be a holy priesthood. And we are built up to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I want to think a minute about what does that mean to to be offering spiritual sacrifices? If you guys, if we are corporately a building of God, and if we are individually living stones, and we're, we're set apart for a particular purpose, we're like the cathedrals of ancient Europe or the churches of America built with worship in mind, built to be a place where God and man can meet, and we have a responsibility to offer spiritual sacrifices and to serve as a, a holy priesthood, well, what does that look like? What, what kind of sacrifices are you offering? Well, you might say, well, I showed up. I'm even showing up on Friday morning at 7. Well, I do get fed well, so there's only a, there is some sacrifice still, I know, to get up. Uh, and there's a sacrifice for some of us to eat this breakfast. I know, it's, it's hard to do that, but somehow we manage every week to get it down. But what is the sacrifice that Peter has in mind? I thought the sacrificial system was done away with in Christ, and now we get this sacrifice language. What could it be? Well, think about what Paul wrote in first, or not in first, in uh, Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 1, he talks about the fact that we are to offer our bodies as sacrifices. He says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, or the word could be service of worship. So there's some sense in which even our bodies are offered to God as a sacrifice. Now, fortunately, it's not one that's slain on the altar, But it's a living sacrifice, Paul says. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Everything we do with our physical bodies can be a sacrifice to God, an offering to Him. Well, that can be true if we use our bodies in a way that honors Him. Now, that can be true in anything we do, just about anything that's done unto Him, which means that everything you do with your body done in the Spirit is an act of worship. So as you drink coffee this morning, as you eat eggs and sausage and biscuit, as unto the Lord, eating and drinking as unto the Lord, this is a sacrifice to God. This is worship. As you hammer a nail at home or on the job place, as you read a book, as you drive your car, as you balance a ledger sheet, as you try to figure out your income tax, that's a sacrifice, but that's another story. (laughs) You shoot a basketball, you you fix a leaky toilet. Whatever we do with our bodies can be a spiritual thing, a worship experience to God. We don't tend to think of that. We tend to think we have to go to the building made of brick and mortar to worship God. Peter says, no, you are the place to worship God. You're a living stone. You are offering yourself as a sacrifice. So our bodies, in a sense, are that. But Scripture also talks about the, the sacrifice of praise that we can offer God. 
praise and worship, which is a, a sense of intentionally thinking about him and offering our praise and our thanks for everything that we have, for all that he's done. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 15, put it like this. He says, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So guys, when we give thanks to God's name for whatever it is we're giving thanks for, for the breakfast we eat, for the, for the wonderful people we have in our lives, for all the, the blessings that God gives us, material, spiritual, whatever kind, we're giving a, a sacrifice of praise. That's part of our worship as living stones being built up into a house for God. There's another kind, though, of sacrifice that we do. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about the sacrifices that churches made for him, particularly the church in Philippi. He says this, he said, I received from Epaphroditus, one of them, I received what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Well, what did they send? Well, they sent money. They sent support. So, the, the gifts we give to one another, support for a missionary, certainly an acceptable sacrifice offering to God. But really, I think any act of love that we do for each other. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, it says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So doing good, sharing with one another, whether it's in the church, outside the church, in the family, These are acceptable sacrifices made to God. So we are being built up as living stones into a house that offers spiritual sacrifices, and they can be done in all kinds of ways. We can literally do it while we do almost anything, but it requires something in us and about us that Peter's already mentioned earlier in chapter 1, and that is that we have to be holy. There's a reason why we are called over and over again in Scripture to be holy, because A sacrifice to be offered to God and be accepted by him has to be a holy sacrifice. And most of it's when we hear that word holy, we cringe a bit, don't we? Because we think, well, that's certainly not me. I'm disqualified for that one. Um, And you're right, you are. (laughs) And I am too, if we're trying to do it in ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, and it's Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us who are in Christ. That's what makes any sacrifice that we offer acceptable to God. But that's the wonderful combination, the partnership, you might say, we have with the Spirit. The Spirit dwelling in us can make even small acts, sacrifices and acceptable worship to God. Things that we hardly think about, but done in the Spirit as the Spirit works through us. So Peter identifies these things, but he says you're also what he calls a holy priesthood, that we have a responsibility to be not only living stones built into a body or a building uh, that offers a worship to God in all that we do, but as a holy priesthood, that's the sense of there, we stand between the world and God in a sense. We're to be a holy priesthood. The priesthood had a responsibility to, to stand between God and the people, to deliver God's message in a sense, but really to represent God's people to him. They had very specific things they had to do. Well, we have specific things we are called to do as a holy priesthood. And part of that specific thing we do, one of those things, of course, is that we represent Jesus Christ wherever we go. We are a holy priesthood. Which also means, though, just think that 
You're a priest, every one of us. It's, it's not just the pastors in a church that do that work. It's not just the elders who are charged to do it or the deacons. It's not just the choir singing. It's every single person in any church is a priest in a sense, in the way Peter's talking about it. That we have responsibility to bring people to God, to be a conduit that people could know Him. And so again, to do that, we have to be set apart. And Peter keeps hammering away at the need for us to desire God, to desire His Word, to let Him change us from the inside out. So what sets us apart? What makes us as a spiritual house special? Is it only because we build buildings like this that we can meet in and worship? Is it only because we use the name Christian or Christ follower or whatever it is we might call ourselves? What is it that sets us apart? Well, as a house, corporately, as living stones built into a spiritual building, we are set apart because we are holy. We're a holy house, designated so by God. He is the one who makes us that way, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're also a united house. When Peter writes these words to these exiled Christians in Asia Minor, they might have thought, we don't feel much like this. Life's not too good for us. We're not connected with the rest of the body of Christ very well. They felt isolated. They felt persecuted. They felt probably somewhat alone. And yet Peter says we are united, that this is a corporate sense. The whole church together is a holy priesthood. We're a single house. There is one church in the world. Now, there are plenty of individual local expressions And there are way too many denomination expressions probably. But in reality, Christ looks at his church, of which we are all members, and he sees one church, one holy priesthood. Now again, in the days of the original readers of Peter's letter, they're thinking, well, we're not sure this applies to us. We're isolated. We have to meet probably, if not in secret, like many people, many Christians in our world have to do today. They at least had to be careful where they met. They didn't have buildings to meet in. There weren't any churches. They probably tried to meet in synagogues until they got kicked out. And then maybe they met down by the riverside, which is often the case. They met in homes. They rented public buildings if they were allowed to do so. But the fact of the matter was, to be a Christian in the Roman Empire in the first century was no guarantee of any blessing from the Roman Empire. In fact, it was a probably good chance that you're going to get persecuted. And they were particularly feeling that in Asia Minor. They felt the rejection for being a Christian. One, one scholar wrote it this way, in the first century Roman society, conversion to Christ did not raise one's social status. <laughs> It wasn't something good. Now, it used to be in our country, I understand, back in the 50s, 60s maybe, that if you moved to town and you wanted to be a person of prominence, you found the most prominent church and you joined it. And that gave you some status. I belong to the first Presbyterian church. Or I go to Christ Episcopal. I don't know if being a Baptist gives you status anywhere. I'm just saying that. (laughs) Sorry, Wes. I used to be one of those, so I know that. But in Rome, first century, becoming a Christian, being born again, brought you this, quote, a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants. That's how they were looked upon. They were thought as endangering the common good, 
Christians were, were dangerous. This public shaming was used as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to the conventional values and standards of conduct in Roman society. You know, Roman society didn't like anybody going against the goad. They wanted everybody to look the same, and they wanted everybody to be in line with one another. And these Christian people, they just didn't do it. And so they felt that, and they were persecuted because of it. And they may have been tempted to think, well, Peter, this is great. This is probably true about, about the Christians who were meeting in Jerusalem, or maybe even those in Antioch, or maybe Philippi, but, but we're these exiles, believers in Asia Minor, trying to eke out an existence. And being a Christian for us is a, is a life of hardship and social stigma. And politically, we are outcasts. And it's possible, in fact, that in certain cities in Asia Minor, Christians weren't even allowed into the marketplace if they were known as Christians. They, people were actually told, we don't want your money. <laughs> That's the way they felt about them. So to be said that, well, but you're living stones. You're a building built up into a spiritual house. You're a holy priesthood. They probably felt, well, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like God is against us. We feel like the rejected cornerstone. We feel like we're the ones who are being berated and abused. No surprise. Often for Christians, that's what life is. So Peter, as he goes through this description of this cornerstone, that Jesus is the stone that God is building upon. He's quoting Old Testament after Old Testament verse. He's drawing even these readers back to the idea that, yes, this is not new. Jesus himself was the rejected cornerstone. You may well be that as well. But here's the deal. Verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you. What's the honor? The honor of serving Christ. The honor of being his people. The honor of being built on the cornerstone. When you're built on the right cornerstone, that's a good place to be built. You're in a safe position. God is for you, not against you. You don't need a priest. You're a holy priesthood yourself. You need no intermediary to get to God except Christ. You're in a good position. And then he reminds them this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He says this, second part of that, even up back in verse 7, the stone the builders rejected pointing back to those who do not believe, 7a. There's honor for you, those of you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone is not a good stone. They're not built on the cornerstone. The cornerstone for them is, in verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So Peter writes to these Christians and says, no matter what you're experiencing, what persecution is coming your way, what hardship as you become an offering of sacrifice to God. As hard as that is, and as alienated as you feel, don't worry. You're in the winning position. The honor will be yours. But for those who don't believe, these amazing words at the end of verse 8, they, be, they stumble because they disobey the word, and these last, sentence, those last words, as they were destined to do. Well, that's a wonderful another sermon. <laughs> What does he mean they were destined to disobey? 
There are some who develop the whole doctrine of double predestination from this verse. I don't have time to do that in one minute. (laughs) And I'm not sure I could. But the point is this. Believers, you're stones, you're living stones. You are in a place of honor. Feel like it or not, for eternity, you are in the position of blessing. Those who don't believe, the cornerstone falls on them. They stumble on it, it falls on them. So let me finish with these words from a German theologian. Got to watch those German theologians, you know. Sometimes they have something good to say, sometimes not so sure. But this German theologian from, a, from last century, Leonard Gopelt, had this to say. He said this, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of one's creator and redeemer, and thereby of one's identity. How true that is, isn't it? Even those who would say to God, I don't need you. I'm pretty self-sufficient. I've got my course mapped out. Thank you very much. Life is good. I have material possessions. I have social prestige. I have everything I need. I don't need you. Gopelt reminds us that, oh, that person is about to stumble. He is in the very position of falling. So let's make sure, brothers, that we are not falling and stumbling over the living stone who is Jesus. But let us be living stones ourselves. And let us watch and see how God is building a wonderful, beautiful building out of us that we might offer acceptable sacrifices of praise. Let's do that together. Amen. Have a great day.